four completely bloody horrible unsympathetic main characters, venal, selfish, irresponsible, violent, petty, and unsanitary. That's a few of the points of difference that gave the 1980s TV series The Young Ones a cult following, according to one of its stars, comic actor, musician, writer, Adrian Edmondson. He and Rick Mayle, the late Rick Mayle, were pioneers of the alternative comedy scene in London via the Comedy Store and then their own club, The Comic Strip, along with people like Dawn French and Alexi Sale and Jennifer Saunders, uh, to whom Edmondson has been married for 38 years and to whom his just-released autobiography is a love letter, even though she's not in it very much. The book is called Berserker, and it describes the origins and development of his anarchistic, violently slapstick style. I asked him if he enjoyed writing it. I really did, yes. Uh, it was the result of a lot of strange factors all happening at once. I'd never, I've never had the urge to write an autobiography before. But uh, something happened to me in that, in that uh, first lockdown that we had. We were all incarcerated in our homes. And luckily, I live in a lovely home in, in Devon. I've got a lovely garden. And uh, I realised for the first time in my life that uh, the noise in my head stopped. I hadn't even realised I had a noise in my head. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But, uh, but I, I felt this intense peace brought on by this forced lack of anything to do. All I was doing was gardening. Uh, I grow vegetables. Um, I won prizes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've won second prize for my cucumbers and Look, I've won third prize for unspecified vegetables. Okay. Unspecified. Um, yeah. yeah, well, it sounds worse than it is. It's just in the schedule. If you're not in the schedule and you've got a vegetable, this I won third prize for my spring onions. Oh, well done. Um, but I, I was in the middle of all this gardening and uh, I, I had a moment of um, I started learning things that I'd never sort of learnt before uh, because there was nothing to do. So I, I, so I, I you know, how had I got to my 60s and not known what the birds in my garden were? You know, so I got the book and uh, and, I, and I got an app that told me what they sang like. And I started to recognise birds by their song alone. And I, one day I was standing in my vegetable plot uh, and I could hear a song thrush in the hedge and I couldn't see it, and I stood for 20 minutes in one spot trying to see this bird, and I realised that my life had taken a strange turn, and <laughs> I think I'd, I'd sort of reached enlightenment. And oh, this is a strange turn. Your life yeah. hitherto had not been strange, but now it was strange. Well, I understand. Well, life, you know, yeah. I think a lot of people felt that during lockdown. It was something about not being inundated with choices about what to do with yourself. Yeah. I, I've always thought that enlightenment was um, something to be found, but actually it's just, it's just a nothingness. It's a kind of emptying. And I sort of filled it with uh, scanning all the photographs in the house. I decided in the evenings when I couldn't garden, I'd just make an online archive for the whole family and kind of understanding my life afresh. You know, when you, when you only look at photos that are sort of 40, 50, 60 years old and you remember more about, what's just off the edge of the photograph than you thought you could. The book is quite explicit about the link between pain and comedy. 
in many ways. I mean, your yeah. painful youth. In my in my particular line of comedy, yes. I mean, my 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 comedy is full of slapstick violence, and um, I just happened to think that it was based on the amount of violence that was meted out to me as a kid. You know, in uh, boarding school. Yeah. And at home, by your father, it was kind of emotionally violent. Yeah. But my mother tried to throttle me, you know. I mean, it was... It was... There was that? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. I don't know why she gave up. Well, why did she go. stop? That's the question. <laughs> yeah. The reason that you were sent to boarding school, of all your... the four children in the family... You had an older yeah. sister and two younger brothers. You were sent to boarding school from Uganda. Do you think you were a bit berserk then? I think that's exactly the moment I became berserk. All yes. right. I think I tried to fill the void where family should have been with adrenaline. And I, th I think that's what a berserker is. Mm. Someone who operates uh, on adrenaline, looking for thrills, anything. And, and anger's quite good in that respect. Um just trying to kind of bash your way through life rather than um, take the more cultured route. <laughs> Which your father would much have preferred. Certainly would. Classical Mind music. You, he, had no, he had no idea, really. He had no idea what culture was. If he'd known that Mozart in his kind of heyday was as much of a punk as Johnny Rotten was in his, he'd have been surprised. The thing about our parents, and I'm about the same age as you, is that they were very, very snobbish. They were they they did not know much about much, but they pretended yeah. they did. Do you think we do that? They swallowed the line from their own parents, didn't yeah. they? Bizarre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, talking about the the way you created yourself, as you said, your slapstick, you and and Rick and uh, back in the comedy club, the comedy store, and the comic strip. Your slapstick had a vicious streak, and it was the pain that you found funny. I mean, you'd rush on stage and bash yourself with the microphone. You still got that scar of those. I do. I do, I do still have a kind of um, Dent. dry patch. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's a constant dry patch. It's a, it, it, yeah. And you describe you and Rick as desperate to laugh, frantic, despairing, distracted. It was like a disease. Yeah. Yeah, that was the, the only kind of currency we had was laughter. We didn't really have anything else. It's not that we were particularly impoverished, but there was, there was nothing much else going on. There was no, there was no other kind of uh, hope for us. I mean, we'd, we'd managed to get to university, which was um, a feat in itself because uh, we both did quite badly. But there was, there was no kind of easy route out of university to being a performer of any kind, not even just a regular kind of actor. Well, it was a red brick university, as you describe it. You were red brick yeah. comedians. Yeah. So you didn't have the footlights route, for example. Yeah. Well, I, I've kind of come up with this uh, red brick comedian as a kind of, kind of way of explaining the kind of people we were compared to what else was around at the time. And th there was the kind of Oxbridge route and, and, and uh, the, the BBC was full of Oxbridge people. Um, in commissioning and everything, and, and they gave them their, their friends and uh, relatives uh, quite an easy go. And uh, during the Second World War, all those kind of entertainment parties had, had fostered 
all those people like Hancock and Tommy Cooper and, um, you know, the writers of Dad's Army. Um, and uh, there was another slight group that involved people like Billy Connolly and um, Mike Harding, um, the Rochdale Cowboy, uh, the sort of folk club circuit, which kind of threw up some other comics. But uh, there'd never been this kind of um, entry into comedy from the half-educated. <laughs> and it was punk. I mean, basically, it was punk. Yeah, yeah, DIY. Yeah, do it yourself. I didn't realise, I'd never thought of the origin of the word slapstick, but you did your thesis, as you say in the book, on Commedia dell'arte, and it was literally a stick, a paddle made of... Yeah, it's, it's like a very long castanet. Yeah. And if you um, if you hit someone with it, it doesn't hurt them as much as usual, but it makes a really good sound. Do you think you was... I mean, this is such a clichéd question, and I'm sorry, but... You make yourself and Rick sound quite self-destructive, were you? Um, I don't think we wanted to destroy ourselves, but there was a disregard for being whole. Yeah. <laughs> you perceive the difference. Though. Yeah. There's a, I, I don't think we were uh, sort of hell-bent on destruction. Neither were we hell-bent on being wholesome people. There was a thing I used to do when... Uh, when we used to perform at the comic strip, where uh, I, I discovered that the more you hurt yourself, the more people laughed. And uh, there was a kind of cement wall at the back of the stage, and I found that if I banged my head against it, it would get a laugh, because it was obviously not a fake wall, and people could hear it, even though, because it was a small 200-seater club. And the harder I banged my head against the concrete wall, the bigger the laugh, <laughs> you know. What are you going to do? What are you going um, to do? You describe yourself as nuts at the age of 19. You were, as you said, at Manchester University. You got married at 19 for reasons yeah. that kind of escape you now and not to Jennifer. Um, I don't know. You had a nervous breakdown, I suppose, is one way of putting it. Is that how you would describe it? You don't describe it that way. No, I don't. I, I don't know what it would be described as these days. Uh, I, I think I had mental ill health, and and the 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 words ill mental ill health didn't really exist in the seventies. You know, you were given a couple of aspirin and told to carry on. Mm -hmm. It can't have been that bad. I was put on these kind of um, I don't know what they were, uh, the things to calm me down. Um, probably Valium uh, at that time, was it? Yeah, it's probably something like that, and. Uh, I just didn't. I didn't like the idea of not being myself, even if even if the person who was myself was quite ha unhappy, you know. So I, I I just stopped taking them and just self medicated, you know, just drank my drank my way out of it really. Mm. And you read a book. I did eventually. It took a long time to get to that. I was in my forties. Oh, were you? Because yeah. it changed your life. Do you think your life was yeah. not changed until then? Uh, not not entirely, no. And this book no, was called was Philosophy always... for Life and Other Dangerous Situations by Jules Evans. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's about um, Stoic philosophy, uh, not not the sort of um, stiff upper lip Stoicism of the World War Two, but the the idea that uh, you don't feel pain because of what's happened. You feel pain because of what you think about what's happened, mm. and you can change what you think about what's happened. You can't change what's happened, but you can change what you think about it. And if you practice uh, often enough, it's just a question of really working at it. You can you can change your first responses to a lot of kind of 
situations. At the yeah. end of the book, you quote Jung as saying, I, I am not what well, happened to uh, me. As a kind of joke, really. I know, but I mean, that's virtually the same thing. I am not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's in that's also in sort of uh, in, um, uh contrast to to sort of Aristotle, who said, you know, give me a boy at seven and I'll show you the man. Um, one idea is that we are fixed, and the other is that we are not. And I think that's been the the kind of main battleground of my life, really, deciding which one yeah is which. Well, and when you tried to stop being an accidental comedian. Yeah. That was remarkably an easy transition for you because you suddenly realised you didn't have to do that anymore. You did not have to do yeah. it anymore. Yeah. It, there's never been any kind of um, black and white moments. That, that was at the end of... Uh, we, we'd finished... Rick and I had sort of come to an end and uh, I did one more sitcom after that um, called Teenage Kicks. Which was fine, but I but I just knew it wasn't the real thing, and I thought that that was when I had the kind of moment of realizing that I didn't have to pretend to be a comedian anymore. Do you think if you you'd know? had access to the serious acting route earlier on, you would have taken oh. it? Yeah, I would have been in Hollywood. <laughs> Come well, on, <laughs> that's not that serious now, is it? But the Royal Shakespeare uh, Company now you're talking. You played Scrooge. Well, yeah, I've been there a couple of times, actually, recently. Oh, what um, else have you done recently? I did Twelfth Night about five, six years ago. Uh. The, 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 the awful thing is that if, if you start kind of going down the road, oh, I could have. Yes, you yes. Know, you're sort of dissing everything that you've done. Uh, so the thing is to accept what you are and what you've done and that you're a product of everything that's happened to you. Uh, and then sort of... Um, then try and put it behind you and become whatever you want to be. You do not say this specifically, and I don't want to press you because I know that you and Jennifer are quite keen on privacy, and rightly so, but I do get the impression that she saved your life. Um, she certainly played a big part in, in uh, me becoming uh, less unhappy, yes. You know, we, we never know what we're doing. Do, do you know what you're doing at any particular time? <laughs> it's only in, you know, we, we make all these not. things in retrospect and hindsight. Not. You know, it, it's, it's life's far too complicated and messy, you know. Uh, but I think we were very lucky that we, we met each other um, and didn't get together for four years after we'd met each other. And then tell me how you finally got together, please, because I like it. Well, I, I came out of the pub one day and uh, under the windscreen wiper of my car was an empty packet of silk cut and on it Jennifer had written, I love you. And that was the sort of start of our uh, a deeper relationship. More to the point, I love you, Adrian, lest you think that it yeah. was meant for somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> How true. different things could have been. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah. There are very, very, lest we make people think that the book is entirely self-help and how to grow giant vegetables, it is also very funny. 
you know, the difference between so, yeah. pain and laughter. There was a, a very slim I one. ended up writing uh, the first draft that had 12,000 words about corporal punishment. <laughs> of which you had become heavy. quite an expert at the boarding school, of well, course. Well, yeah. But I, I, I hope it's some of the funniest writing about corporal punishment that anyone will ever read. It's hilarious. I, I think it has um, use to it in that respect. I mean, the thing is, you know, the way of not, of not letting them get at you is, is to, to, to laugh at them, and I think that's what I've done most of my life, so most of it is about that. Yeah. Um, in 1987, I mean, there are bits that, that obviously make one laugh out loud when reading it, and I'm wondering whether you laughed out loud when you were writing it. For example, when you were performing at the Guildhall in Portsmouth with Bad News, your spoof metal band, uh, which was created, you are careful to point out, a year ahead of Spinal Tap. You were, living, you were living the dream and then you got yeah. hit in the face with well, a what? We'd done, a, we'd done a, some publicity that morning on the local radio show to try and flog the extra tickets. And, uh, you know, we used to make up a load of rubbish. Um, so we, we we were all in character and sort of saying, you know, they asked, well, how, how do you write your songs? And we said, well, we, we, we get round and we, we sort of burn some playing cards and uh, uh, we summon up the devil and uh, <laughs> and he, he generally writes the lyrics. Uh, you know, then we throw in a bit of offal and, uh, and you know, just to make the chorus... And uh, and by the time we got to the Portsmouth Guild on that night and went on, they started just throwing awful at us. Oh. Uh, there was some some young boys who worked in a butcher's shop and it was just a kind of um, sea of awful. So um, you were, in fact, hit in the face with a sheep's eyeball. Yeah, yeah. Not as bad as uh, when we got to Reading. Uh, uh, we we kind of made a rod for our own backs in, in that second bad news film. There's... Um, there's a lot of we. I constructed a story. I directed that one. I constructed a story. I, I filmed them all day. The audience at Donington, and um, I filmed every bit of, of uh, sort of sta- throwing things at the stage, and I made it look like everything was thrown at bad news. And um, by the time we got to Reading, they thought this was the game, <laughs> and they're younger and and slightly cleverer at Reading, and um, they were they were sort of. They were peeing into those two-litre bottles and, and one, two or three of them had managed to vomit into these oh. huge plastic bottles. And they're this kind of... Um, the sky filled with these two-litre bottles and uh, they sort of crashed on the stage um, with um, some alarming olfactory consequences. Um, it was the day that Rick had decided his joke that day would be to <laughs> have his leg in a plaster cast. Um and be wheeled around by a roadie. Uh, so he'd, he'd plastered his leg up, because um, that was the easiest way to do it, and uh, and his roadie abandoned him, because there was <laughs> just this kind of <gasps> sea of urine and vomit, and um, and, he, and he couldn't get himself out of his chair because he was in actual plaster, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sort of had to grip his own wheels, and they were covered in vomit. That was very funny. Very you funny must day. have thought... How far can this go? We've taken this as far as it can go. What's next? I, I think by the time we we did the fifth bottom live tour, which was two thousand and three, I, th- I think well, I, I, you know, pe- people in the audience probably don't realise, but on the stage, you're 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 always judging it. You're always sort of working out what what the response is, and I, I, I perceived. Uh, a slight diminution from the previous tour. 
it doesn't mean the show is any worse. Just, I just felt we were, we'd crossed the peak of the mountain and we're now looking down the other side. And I thought, was that, I go that might have there. been you getting bored with it? Yeah, I was bored with it. Yeah. Right. So was Rick. Every, every, you know, that touring is relentless and tedious in the end. Yeah. You know, when you're doing 120 dates straight, straight up, it, it's hard to differentiate the minutes, you know. And also, you and Rick were just not on the same page anymore. No, no, we weren't. And he'd had that terrible accident. Yeah, he'd banged his head, falling off his quad bike, and uh, sort of been dead for three days, as he described it. Um, he hadn't, I mean, he was on a ventilator, but, um, yeah. The funniest episode of Bosham that I saw, and you mentioned this in your book, is when Richie and Eddie um, are stealing a car and they have to obviously hide their identities and instead of a stocking for their head, they only had a pair of tights. A pair of tights, yeah. So you put your heads into a luggage? Yeah. I was I was trying to explain there how, how, I mean, it's quite a lot about creativity in the book and how, how, how we did what we did, you know. And we used to go down the mine, as we called it, and uh, so you'd think, well... What can we do with stockings? There must be there must be jokes with stockings, and you'd, you'd you'd spend an hour thinking of all the jokes you could ever do with stockings, end up with maybe fifty of them, and then you'd pick the best one. <laughs> that's that's all. That's all. That's all it is, really. I hadn't heard of Sturgeon's Law before. Well, yeah, yeah. Ninety percent of everything is crap. Um, pretty good law, I think. I mean, he invented it. He was a proper. American uh, science fiction writer, and um, he was asked to deliver a lecture and kind of defend science fiction as an art form, because you know the culture vultures will always try and bring you down. And he said, in the same way as as in literature and as in nearly anything, and this is a personal point of view, ninety percent of everything is crap. You know, ninety percent of television that I watch is. It might not be the same 90% as your 90%, but it, you know, we all we all have our 90%. And it's only 10% of anything that's any good. And I think he's right. And uh we were lucky that Rick and I had the same 10% for a, a good uh, 30 years. Yeah. You know. And also people remember the 10%. That's yeah. a good thing. Nobody says, oh my God, you know, it's people say, oh, Sticks in the mind. People must come to you all the time yeah. and say, "I love this." I mean, I people that. talk about the golden age of sitcom in mm-hmm. the sort of seventies and eighties, and you know, it, you can't really get beyond ten good ones, and they made hundreds. There's a very funny. Yeah. There's a very funny. I don't know whether I've turned the place over. I'm looking at the um, the book now. Oh yes, Terry and June. People might remember. Um, yeah. A series called Terry and June, Terry Scott and June Whitfield, and they had an episode called New Doors for Old, in which Terry and June buy a new front door, only to discover it's two inches too short. That's the entire plot. And then you've yeah. got the Young Ones episode of Oil. You might like to describe this to me, if you can recall. Well, I mean, I, I write about four pages of it. Uh, because uh, an awful lot more happens in that than, than you know, 
It's, it, was, it was a much wilder show. Buddy Holly is found singing in the attic. Viv sets fire to I remember when we, when we turned up at the BBC, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're probably aware of that rotunda. It features in a lot of programmes, that BBC building. And uh, we turned up with the young ones, and uh, we went to visit the special effects department, which was, in, was not in that nice swish building. It was in a Nissan hut out the back. And they were just overjoyed to see us because, you know, the biggest thing they were working on at that moment was a breakable cup for Terry and June. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we wanted explosions and we wanted whatever they would throw at us, you know. Invent things. We'll we'll do it for you. Which is why we end up doing, you know, dropping out of the ceiling live in front of an audience, 25 foot in a bed, you know. We, 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 my daughter read the book, <laughs> read an early draft of it and said... Um, you were never really a comedian, were you? You were basically a stuntman. And uh, it's pretty true. Yep. I thought she was going to say a psychopath because there is that element no. of it. <laughs> a stuntman well, psychopath. Um, yeah. So what are you doing now that brings you the greatest pleasure? Gardening, growing giant vegetables. Yeah. I lurch from project to project. Um, and uh, I really enjoy myself. I uh, I have a sort of level of creativity that feels undimmed. You know, my life's pretty full of of stuff to do, and uh, I enjoy it greatly. I enjoy meeting lots of new people every time I do new new things. Yeah, it's good fun. Let me ask you this because I'm I'm always interested in people who were brought up the way you were um, uh, to repress your emotions was essential how yeah. do you father how did you learn to father oh i just i just <laughs> it's a simple rule uh, whatever my dad did do the opposite <laughs> and is that has that worked for you oh yeah absolutely uh. yeah yeah tell people you love them <laughs> you know enjoy what they do um be positive about uh, their choices, you know. He never Don't gave tut. you... <laughs> no, he did tut a lot by the sounds of it, and he never gave no. you any support or encouragement. No, none whatsoever at any point. What about... Anything. You don't mention your three siblings. Do they share your experience? Often siblings don't. Um... Well, you know, I describe how I was sent away um, yeah. while the rest of them stayed at home. Uh, so, uh, so I don't really know my my younger brothers. But um, I see uh, my sister and I are quite close, uh, have become closer, actually. Uh, I think since I started writing this book, because we, we understand a lot about the same thing, which um, are still dealing with it. You know. Yeah, that's an endless project, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but it's good, you know, it, it kind of, um, it's good to have an ally. And you had to make friends with her, I imagine, because when you were sent to boarding school, where, as you say in the book, you learnt to be emotionally cold and maladjusted without showing it too much, your family yeah. had become strangers to you by the time you got out of boarding school between the ages of 12 and 18. Yeah, I mean, they, they've, they've got different accents to me, you know, they've, they all, they've all got a broad Yorkshire accent, I, I talk like this. Uh, mostly because I tried to be Vivian Stanshaw for the last sort of four <laughs> years of my teens. <laughs> uh, 
Um, it's excellent talking to you, and um, the best of luck with all your endeavours, including the vegetables. Oh, well, thank you very much. Do you have a secret? <laughs> Do you have a secret vegetable essence? Uh, the my secret is nematodes. Uh, if you're if you're growing anything, courgettes, anything that lies close to the ground, lettuces. Ne the, treat them with treat the ground with nematodes before you start. How do you treat the ground with nematodes? Um, it's, it's in the fallow period. About aren't six they weeks naturally? You start planting. Aren't they naturally occurring? No, no, but you can you can buy extras, and oh, they they just you? eat all the slugs. Yeah, they destroy all the slugs. You can buy packets of nematodes. Yeah. Good lord! It looks like kind of fish meal. Oh, but um, but they're all the tiny little things. That's excellent advice. Thank you so much. Hmm. <laughs>